This episode is brought to you by Skinny Pop Popcorn. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Oh, so light and crunchy. Skinny Pop Original Popcorn is the snack you've been searching for. Made with just three simple ingredients, popcorn kernels, sunflower oil, and salt. Snacking never felt or tasted so good. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Give yourself permission to snack and pick up Skinny Pop Original Popcorn today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, bet you get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This podcast is sponsored by Bang and Olufsen. A concert recording, a new symphony, even your favorite podcast. It matters how it sounds. Peter Bang and Sven Olufsen knew this when they founded their Danish audio brand in 1925, and their vision endures today. For nearly a century, Bang & Olufsen has been pushing the boundaries of audio technology and continues to sit at the forefront of acoustic innovation, because sound matters. Find out more at bang-olufsen.com forward slash classical. Welcome to the Music to My Ears podcast, brought to you by BBC Music Magazine, the world's best-selling classical music monthly. I'm Freya Parr, the magazine's digital editor and staff writer, and this week I'm chatting to the brilliant multi-instrumentalist, composer and producer Cosmo Sheldrake, whose music brings together samples of field recordings, improvisation and poetic, eccentric vocals, and has even been featured in adverts for Apple's iPhone, on stage in West End plays, and even went viral on TikTok. His debut album, The Much Much How How and I, was released in 2018, with various EPs and shorter recording projects following suit. Towards the end of last year, he released Wake Up Calls, a selection of tracks built around the sound of endangered birds in what he referred to as a collaboration with Britain's wildlife. You might be able to catch a little bit of background noise in this week's episode. Cosmo was very on-brand and recorded his side of the conversation outdoors in Dorset during the early months of spring, where the birds were particularly lively. He released Wake Up Calls at the end of last year. What was the process in putting that together? Well, I made I made it over a period of time. Really, it was um it was something that kind of evolved quite organically. I um I made the first piece out of owl music or out of birdsong maybe about nine years ago and sort of maybe even ten um as a present really. From my girlfriend gave me a painting of an owl and um and asked me asked me to give her an owl back. So I um basically made a piece of music out of recordings of British owls and then gave that to her. And then that kind of began the kind of trajectory of thinking about making music from birdsong. And and then it kind of, a little while time went by and then it achieved this sort of bottleneck where one Christmas I hadn't 
figured out what I was going to give any of my family and then ended up staying up all night on Christmas Eve making um, personalised alarm clock music for them out of bird songs. So a good chunk of the music on the album originated that Christmas Eve and then and then it's kind of chopped and changed over time. But yeah, for the last year, I, I finished it off here and I, I made quite a lot of it here as well and, and kind of did a lot of field recording around here. And it was it was kind of born through through being here in Dorset. But um, um, but yeah, some of the themes and elements and, and recordings and, and like musical snippets had, had their origins over a kind of quite a long period of time. Have you studied the bird song? And do you know what each one is? Or is it kind of just you listen to the sound and whether it appeals to you aesthetically? I mean, I'm getting better. I wouldn't, I mean, I'm <laughs> certainly not, I'm my first, like, I'm not first and foremost an ornithologist or a twitcher or a kind of, you know, I am, I certainly am a kind of bird enthusiast. And when I was a kid, you know, my dad um, used to take us bird spotting and used to call me the family bird spotter, probably just to kind of actually encourage me to become a bird spotter. But I definitely used to, I mean, I've, I've always been very keen on, um, on birds and and you know spent quite a lot of time sort of keeping my eyes out for them but but i'm i wouldn't i'm certainly no expert in in identifying them from their from their calls but but i've certainly got a lot better through through the making you know over the last year and also being here there's just there's just such an amazingly healthy bird population around um in these like immediate surroundings so so i've i've got so much better than i was but but yeah i'm, I'm miles away from being feeling any good <laughs> So how do they work as alarm clocks then? Because obviously the dawn chorus is kind of used as to like kickstart your brain and it stimulates you cognitively. Were they successful as alarm clocks? I mean, it's just profoundly cha- changed, you know, quite permanently changed the way that I hear birdsong and, and I find it almost impossible now to sleep through a dawn chorus if it's loud enough. And, um, <laughs> and I've, I found that with, the, you know, my family who I gave them to, they found the same thing. That it's highly sensitised us all to... Uh, to the sound of birdsong um and that continues um so i mean they they worked a little too well kind of thing as alarm clocks because they just they ended up making the world turn into an alarm clock a natural one so um so i mean it got to the point where i mean they didn't always turn out exactly as planned like i, I composed some of them thinking that you wouldn't have to i'm a big fan of snoozing and hitting the snooze button but i, I made some with the, the idea that you wouldn't have to snooze it, that it would be it would be nice-ish and nice enough to listen to mm. the piece, that you wouldn't have to kind of slam snooze on, that you'd be able to just sort of leave it going. And, and by the time the piece finished, in theory, you would be awake, but didn't always plan out exactly as planned. But, um, but yeah, no, I think they are nice. I mean, I still use them all the time for... I mean, that's the only alarm clocks I use are these birdsong things. So I find them really effective and I know that my family all use them still. So yeah, no, I think they can be effective. I recommend trying them out, but they, uh, the side effect is that I've certainly found that um, it's much harder to sleep through a dawn chorus. The slightest rumbling of bird song just wakes you up in the morning. So we wake up so much of the time to such an obnoxious noise in the morning. The first thing you hear is just this really sort of panic inducing sort of like grating alarm bell. And so it was, the idea was to try and, you know, wake up in a slightly more gentle therapeutic sort of space rather than um yeah always being jarred awake by some sort of aggressive sounds so when you're out hunting for sounds in any in any kind of with birds or with other kinds of nature or wildlife what are you looking for in a sound is there anything you're specifically trying to capture i mean some sounds just just trigger a kind of emotional response more than others like the other day i was outside my parents house in london and it was raining and just the way that the I was standing kind of down, you have to walk down from street level down a flight of stairs. So I was, I was slightly out of earshot, but I could hear this, all the rain falling down a drain into this 
I guess the beginning of a kind of storm or drains um, rain sort of sewer system, and just the, the something about the resonant space and the um, the resonant frequency of the hole that the water is falling into. It was just it was creating these kind of muted, very melodic, rhythmic kind of gurgling sounds that. I thought it took me a while to figure out what it was. I thought it was someone playing some really amazing music down the street that was kind of wafting up and eventually realized as I investigated further that it was the sounds of these, um, the water kind of resonating in this um, kind of chamber. I wanted to walk down the street and find out what the music was and ask whoever was playing it what they were playing sort of thing and realized it was actually the rain. So, I mean, it, it depends. Um, some Some sounds just have more obvious musical potential and and already feel to me like their music in the first place and all you have to do is sort of slightly embellish them or kind of contain them or it's almost like um put them in a frame and hang them on the wall and then suddenly everyone sort of also sees them i don't know it's just if you change somewhat subtly the context under which people sort of encounter certain recordings then um anyway that's kind of what's happening for me sometimes automatically just because i'd sort of hear them that way in the first place so that's interesting you say you heard that in the city as well, because I kind of associate a lot of your music with the British landscape and the British countryside, but you still have those kind of visceral responses to sounds within the city as well. Yeah, very much so. I mean, we did, I haven't finished it yet, but I've done um, I've done a kind of ongoing project with um, exploring some of the underground rivers in London, because um, one of them used to, where I grew up, and um, my primary school had, one of the sources of the Fleet River was underneath my primary school, it was a kind of well. Um, and um, where I grew up in London, my street used to basically have the river running right outside it. And some of the houses up the up the hill were built as um, for watercress farmers on the banks of the Fleet River, which is now you know long gone. And it's still there, but it's just functioning, running running under under the street. You can hear it still if you go and put your ear on a drain just up my street up the road. You can you can hear the sound of all the river rushing underneath. And all the ponds on Hampstead Heath are just dammed bits of the Fleet River. So we basically walked from the top of Hampstead Heath where it all kind of um, the source of the river and then followed the river down through London where it used to run um, until Blackfriars Bridge where it basically comes out right underneath Blackfriars Bridge and then also broke down into the sewers and and recorded some of the sounds underground as well. So there's a whole kind of musical project and then record I'm making music currently out of the recordings of of that route. So I mean that's um yeah I'm I'm very I'm sort of interested in all sorts of sounds really and and just using sounds to kind of tell stories or investigate um investigate things and that's urban or kind of rural or I mean I grew up in the city so you know I've always been inspired by the sounds around me as well um so yeah I think it's 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 not just not just natural sounds and um sort of all sorts of sounds really. Even if it involves um, sticking a head down a drain. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess my only sort of my yeah, it's just a shame that so much of um, human-made sounds is sort of unconscious noise pollution rather than like. Mm. I think if we if we had a little bit more attention, if we paid a bit more attention when we we're designing machinery and stuff to like it's it's you know how it sounded and its sort of acoustic impact, then I don't know, it'd be better for everyone. Yeah, are there any sounds that you've sampled or played around with that you're particularly proud of or are particularly out of the box or weird or the ways in which you had to get them was particularly strange? Well, I mean, I'm quite interested in radio astronomy um, mm. and I'm sort of, and just amateur radio in general. I'm doing a, currently doing a <laughs> amateur radio training course. So I, I find there's, there's a few sounds that I've played for, um, you know, played with. Um, that have sort of been recorded by radio astronomers, like sounds of comets and um, 
and coronal mass ejections and and the, you know sound of the sun in general and um so that's that's always got this amazing kind of unearthly quality to it um something i'm trying to get better at and more into is is getting sensitive enough microphones or contact microphones to to kind of record um acoustic phenomena within plants um and fungi hopefully um and I've recently been sort of playing with, I've got this um, a device that picks up bioelectrical activity in plants and fungi and converts it into sound. So I've been playing a bit with that. Um, Is that what you did? I know your your brother's book, Endangered Life, you did, you did a kind of song to go along with that. Is that the kind of thing you used for that? Yeah, so that was, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't me that did the recordings there, but there's an right. amazing guy called Michael Prime who who used the same technology. I have a okay. I have a machine that was built by this guy, this inventor called Tony Bassett, years and years ago. He's long, long dead now, but... But um, Michael Prime's machines were also built by Tony Bassett, and um, but just much more sophisticated versions of the one that I got. But um, so yeah, similar principle is is kind of picking up the bioelectrical activity and then running those signals through various oscillators and generating rhythms and tones and stuff. So yeah, basically that. Um, and yeah, I mean, I recently made a kind of soundscape piece for. Um, for an organization called Landlines and Leeds University kind of exploring subterranea. So that was quite fun having to, using hydrophones to try and record um, kind of root systems of various plants, um, getting all these amazing kind of gulchy snappings. Actually, something I've been trying to do in the last last week, I was because the sap's beginning to run up trees now because they're beginning to get buds. And so I was trying to record. You can get some amazing sounds sometimes if you're lucky, but putting contact mics on trees and, and you can hear I think it's the xylem it's the air pockets in the in the in the cells up the up the bark of the tree um snapping basically you can hear these amazing pops and that's the sound of the sap brushing up the trees to kind of um, help them blossom and bud so that's something I'm trying to record at the moment yeah so stuff that is inaudible to the human ear basically I mean if, if there was one thing that I, there's, I found out about this microphone called uh, I think it's called the AMP the Sanken MO64 and if I could have one thing in the world it'd be one of those <laughs> they're apparently the most sensitive microphones you can hear the hand, like heartbeat of, of an insect in it so yeah I mean that's definitely something that I find intriguing like radio astronomy or, or you know just impossibly quiet sounds which you wouldn't otherwise be able to hear that um, they have a sort of crazy intimacy with the um, by hearing them you're kind of let in in this crazy way you know to this encounter with something that you wouldn't otherwise be able to to sort of feel um so one thing i definitely should ask you about considering our listenership is on wake up calls you one of the tracks you used was benjamin Britten's cuckoo and you blended that with recordings you found around his grave in alderborough can you tell me a bit about how you kind of put that together and why that song in particular well, um, so the recordings of uh, the cuckoo above his grave was actually recorded by Bernie Krauss, the amazing soundscape ecologist, um, who also happens to be a big Benjamin Britten fan, which, is, mm. um, which I found out. But um, that song just always just really leapt out to me. Apart from anything else, it's just a simple question and answer form. Although I think actually, yeah, I did do it in that version. But yeah, what do you do being the first line? What do you do? It's just such a nice question to ask of an animal, of a cuckoo. The song just kind of explains what cuckoos do. Um, and so it's just like, it's a beautiful, it's part of the series of amazing pieces that Britain wrote for, um, I think, for a local children's school in, in near Oldborough. I'd just made a version sampling a cuckoo. And then I'd sent it to Bernie Krauss and he was like, ah, as it happens, he's one of my favourite composers and I have a recording of his, you know, cuckoo singing above his grave. So I, I felt like that had to be included. Oh, wow. 
And then as the bird, as the wake-up calls were all coming together, it was just felt appropriate to include it, basically. I, I didn't necessarily make it for the wake-up calls, but it just it felt like um, it should be in there. What do you do in April? I open my bill in May. I sing night and day in June. I change my tune in July. Far off, I fly in August away. Let's go back to your childhood and your first encounters with music. Has has it always been a part of your life? Yeah, I grew up in... So my dad's a pianist and um, and his family were all quite musical. They, there was sort of lots of church organists um, involved. And then um, and then my mum as well. My mum, my mum's mother was a concert pianist and she, she teaches Mongolian overtone chanting. So I grew up with lots of um, people sort of chanting in the basement. And also she used to, um, for years, she was together with and, and travelled with and worked with um, Karl-Heinz Stockhausen, who is this, one of the kind of pioneers of electronic music. So she she had this kind of awareness and, um, you know, there's on the walls of our house some of his amazing early scores, these kind of pictorial mad sort of diagrams, musical diagrams. And so I guess she'd kind of brought this, you know, awareness and tradition of this kind of experimental electronic music and... Um, and then also with this, had this kind of extraordinary record collection from, you know, just collecting records from all over the world. And, um, and also with this Central Asian chanting thing and, and sound as a form of kind of um, um, meditation. And, and then also just my dad just hammering away at Bach on the piano all the time. So, so that's kind of the, the, the household um, musical kind of staples. But then started playing the piano when I was quite young. Just I think my brother started playing and he's, he's older than me and I think I just got jealous and basically grew up playing, learnt by ear. I learnt the Suzuki method when I started playing boogie woogie and blues piano because our neighbour started having lessons with this amazing teacher. Um, so yeah, it kind of started there. It was just always, yeah, it's been a kind of big part of um, of our family. And my, you know, my brother's a musician as well, plays the accordion and the piano. And Listening to your dad play Bach and things like that, was that anything that you were ever interested in playing yourself or were there different styles that appealed to you more? I mean, I guess, I mean, I'm coming round to it now. Like I'm currently, um, I mean, I, I also then got to this point because I, I then, through learning blues and boogie-woogie and kind of New Orleans music and stuff, um, I got really particularly sort of drawn into that and improvisation. And, um, and when I was about 12 or 13, I stopped having lessons. Um, I got a bit frustrated with it. I was trying to learn a particularly uh, challenging Chopin piece at the time and the Fantasia impromptu and it kind of just drove me a bit crazy and as a consequence of that I kind of snapped and just gave up all lessons and then just basically improvised for years but then slowly but surely I've come back around to it and then through lockdown got a piano here and, and I've been um, trying to learn some Chopin nocturnes again and so it's just coming back around to you know appealing to me to be able to actually play that music I mean I've always loved that music but just the satisfaction of always being able to play it. And, and I think probably for my dad, it's probably one of his lifetime ambitions is that we can play a duet with him. But yeah, I mean, for me, I think I just got sucked more into the kind of blues and New Orleans and improvisatory kind of music for, for a while. And then through just basically stopped, stopped having lessons and just 
messed around for years and years and years. And in the middle of that messing around, sort of encountered electronic music and hip hop and um, loop pedals and field recording and all that sort of stuff. So that was a kind of consequence of this improvisatory kind of um, practice of just noodling around basically. And that kind of began to uh, express itself in kind of trying to compose music as well. Mm. You mentioned that your mum, did she study with Stockhausen? What was their relationship? So, I mean, they were together for them, I mean, as partners for a number of years, but um, mm. but they also did, Stockhausen was particularly interested at the time in um, the harmonic series and in chantings. And also my uh, mum my had written a book called The Mystic Spiral, which is all about the, the role of the spiral in, sac- in sacred geometry and sort of culture and mythology and um and stuff like that. And he, he at the time was also writing a piece called Spirulung and um, was really into spirals as well. So they, they kind of collaborated on exploring some of these themes of sort of um, the harmonic series and spirals and sacred geometry and stuff. And um, yeah, and also just traveled together and um, yeah. lived together for that sort of period of about five years in the 70s. So was his music ever something that you listened to? Because obviously there's a lot to unpack and the concepts are huge. But as a listener, did you ever listen to his music? I mean, a bit, just by being, you know, mm. surrounded by, you know, all these early, you know, first edition records of it and some of his scores and stuff. And yeah, I mean, it was definitely something I was aware of. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't something that we'd ever sort of just sit down and put on in the background. Just, um, <laughs> you know, with that, certainly growing up hearing stories about it and, you know, my mum telling me a bit of the context or what the pieces were about and for. And, um, but, I mean, not enough, to be honest. It's something that I, um, I need to kind of explore just a bit more on a personal level. Just, I, I think for me, I got slightly more... In terms of that period of electronic music, um, I became slightly more, through the field recording practice, became slightly more drawn to the kind of music concrete, um, kind of tape school of like Pierre Schaffer and um, um, Pierre Henry and people like that. So doing more kind of using sounds that already existed in the world and recontextualizing them and sort of mm. taking taking that kind of stuff and remaking making already existing sounds into pieces of music rather than generating sounds from first principles from oscillators and, and uh, electricity so so I think that you know just on a kind of personal creative level I kind of found myself slightly more going down that route and being inspired by that tradition but it's without I mean the pieces that were composed obviously for being perf- performed they obviously were yeah. recorded too and can translate onto recordings but so much of the nature of those pieces I think is is in their performance and also in the kind of in what was being achieved and, and like what was where are these sounds coming from how are they being made there's there's so much that's in the richness of the actual performative nature of the music and um and the context of when it was made and how it was made that um, I think it's really important to listen with that, with those sort of things in mind to really appreciate what's going on, basically. So of all those yeah, kind definitely. of mix of references that you were growing up with, was there one piece of music in particular from whatever of those genres that you first listened to and kind of hit you hard and you fell in love with and went on a journey with? Yeah, there were. I mean, I think um, two that have always stood out to me is like these kind of seminal moments in my life is... Um, my mum gave me, I think it was my 12th birthday, she, it was a particularly good year of present giving. She gave me Sketches of Spain by Miles Davis, which has um, always nice. just been one of my absolute favourite records of all time. Um, and, yeah, and the Cologne concert by Keith Jarrett, just this particularly amazing recording of him just improvising in, in Germany. Um, and so those two became this kind of absolute sort of linchpin things that I'd always listened to. And then she was giving me the copy of the Tao Te Ching as well, which is... Um, I absolutely loved at the time. So yeah, I mean, for me, those two records became like huge, hugely inspiring, influential kind of records, and still are. Um, 
I mean, more so now the sketches of Spain, just like it's still just absolutely one of, I think one of the most like seminal recordings ever made. It's just the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. So, so that's something that continues to, um, to inspire. mentioned improvisation quite a few times which makes a lot of sense because your approach to live music is like very improvisatory has that always been the case or are you bolder with it now than you used to be how has your relationship with it changed i mean if anything i've got more timid to be honest just especially <laughs> over the last year um through lack of performing it's, it's yeah. kind of boldness comes through performing and uh, improvisation is a practice and and if you don't practice it then it you know it's it's like a muscle and and all of these things it's like it's a confidence so much of it's a confidence thing so um so yeah, if anything, if I was to really, really ask myself what was going on, I think I've sort of got a bit more timid. Really, um, I've been meaning for ages to Bob, one of Bobby McFerrin's most enduring pieces of advice, which I think is just like good practice for anyone, even if you're not considered consider yourself a musician, just anyone at all. And also in the theatre improv world, I've I'm, I'm, I've been inspired quite a lot by theatre improv games. Just I think they're sort of particularly brilliant, and also the whole school of kind of clowning. But basically doing something, improvising for at least 15 minutes a day and just not stopping, however stupid it makes you feel, however silly you are, like just open your mouth and just don't shut it again for 15 minutes. Um, so that's something I've been meaning to take to heart and sometimes do, but not enough, basically. So um, so I think I'm going to start trying to, trying to do that a bit more. Um, but yeah, no, I do. I mean, imp- improvisation is a crucial and like big part of my practice. And I think it's it's kind of through through that. If you can get to that point where you improvise for longer than like 15 minutes, then it you start to kind of tap into that subconscious kind of there's something else going on there that you're more you're more like you're like a more like a membrane that like any little bit of wind that comes along will like you're more likely to notice or it will inspiration can like strike easier basically in those moments i think absolutely and obviously when you're on stage you're you tend to be by yourself i don't do you ever perform with other musicians in a live setting I mean, yeah, I play, so I have played and did play for years in a, in a band called Gentle Mystics, which is like a 10-person, um, sometimes 12-person 12, 12 band. Um, and yeah, it was all, I mean, just big old Carnegie messy kind of performance, like a lot, a lot of fun and um, and definitely had its improvisatory elements and moments and, and um, it was like a very high-energy kind of stage, stage show. But I, th- I guess as a kind of natural consequence of that and sort of being playing with so many people all the time and it being sort of completely unwieldy then being able to play on my own and do my do my kind of own thing um with nothing i mean at the beginning it was just like a loop pedal and a microphone and that was it and so there's the simplicity of 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 that kind of thing and being so self-reliant was was a kind of antidote to this otherwise relatively unwieldy kind of um amazing behemoth (laughs) that is the gentle mystics but um yeah, so I mean, I do. I, I'd like to start doing a bit more kind of collaborative performance stuff, especially with other improvisers. I mean, what would be really, really, really fun would just be to show up with like no. Actually, there's one person I have done that with that when um, she, um, an amazing musician called Bunty, Bunty Looping, who's based in Brighton, and um, she supported me on a tour around Germany, and um, she's a great improviser. Um, 
and was completely inspiring. Every every time I go on stage, she'd have just like been playing her show, and it was just every time it was just like it was completely different. It was massively inspired me, and I think that's one of the the best tours, just because I'd go on stage just completely inspired every night just by what I'd heard her do. Um, and we used to do like an improvisation together once an evening, you know, once a once a gig. So that was for me that was absolutely amazing fun, just having somebody else to to play with so I would I would love to do more improvisatory performing things um, and for me it's just like it's different basically when you perform to people when there's an audience it completely changes the dynamic with improvisations it's half of the energy is coming back at you and every time you do something you can feel how it ripples out and how it's responded to and um, and it just feeds the process like doing that on your own doesn't really ever work so well for me at least so so I'd love to I'd love to do more kind of improv like collaborative improvisatory performing you're absolutely knackered by the end of an evening of heavy improvisation in front of a crowd. I imagine it to be like totally draining. Quite the opposite. Really? Quite the opposite. Because I mean, half of the energy, half like so much energy is coming at you from from yeah. the audience. Like it's one of the biggest rushes I've ever felt. It's just like I feel so energized that I can be completely drained before I go on stage. You know, two weeks or a week into a tour, and without fail, even if I've been sort of basically falling asleep, just so without fail, you just come out feeling just electric. Just the energy that. Is, yeah. is is kind of being broadcast in your direction is just contagious basically so how many of the instruments that are heard throughout your music generally on like a broad scale are ones that you've played yourself and how many do you rope in those musicians to record for you kind of depends i mean with the much much how how and i like a lot of the um i kind of went to town a bit on on some of the arrangements there and and kind of got lots of woodwind players and stuff involved mm. but but at the beginning i was i was very much kind of writing them on on you know me playing really badly on a clarinet and then i'd get somebody better to play on a clarinet at the end of it so i mean some of them a lot of them is kind of me playing and then in some cases i then got other people to to step in and just play them better and other times actually like even if i did record other people playing the better i still kind of preferred the vibe of my original rough and ready bedroom kind of recording so i kept them in anyway so mm. and in other cases just doubled their version with my version so there's I mean, a lot, a lot of the stuff on, on the much, much how how and I is either stuff that I wrote by playing that instrument or wrote on keyboards and then got other people to play. But I like to use instruments to write, and often instruments I'm not particularly good at, just to kind of write with and, and play with, just because you end up in sort of unexpected places. My most recent purchase was a Mongolian double bass called an Ik Kur, um, which is like an enormous trapezoid box with um, two strings sort of bass. And then um, I've got a sousaphone and a bass clarinet. And so, the, I mean, at the moment, it's kind of my, my most recent it's been bass and then a couple of sort of synths so I've been going down the kind of bass route it's about time I sort of started learning the piccolo or something looking back on any performances that you've done or that you've been to as a, a music lover are there any that really stand out to you from any of the genres that you're interested in for me like that I, my, my kind of favorite atmosphere or gigging environment is is that kind of slightly informal kind of semi-acoustic like people are close to just um 
just often people jumping in and out. There was a there was a great venue that's been shut down for a while now that um, in London called Jamboree or the Jamboree in, um, in Cable Street. But I mean, I think they've just found a new venue and they're about to open up in King's Cross again. But there's always just something nice. There's just there's a magical little house band that always involved um, this incredible clarinet player called Ewan Bleach and um, and this this guy called Dakota Jim, who's this um, American double bass player and and there's just a little like revolving ensemble of musicians that would always be kind of you know somebody recognized and they do it but they just there was something about that atmosphere and this constant shifting changing just like endless just classic beautiful amazing old songs and they'd all just like constantly switch instruments and and anyone could kind of get up on stage and join in so there's something about that 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 kind of atmosphere that's the thing that i most miss um and then also just that feeling of like, I guess I went to New Orleans a few years ago for Mardi Gras and we spent the whole of Mardi Gras trying to track down the Mardi Gras Indians. They're kind of like the spiritual heart of the, um, of the whole kind of um, festival. Um, and they're incredibly hard, notoriously tricky to track down. So they just never know where they're going to show up and when they're going to disappear to. And um, I think that kind of, I think that might have been some of the most powerful kind of music I've ever experienced kind of being, it's not exactly, I wouldn't even call it a performance because it's not, it's, it's, it's a kind of assertion of cultural identity in a space. Um, but I think, yeah, p potentially one of the most like amazing, powerful kind of things I felt that the, the spirit being so alive and kicking. Being in a place like New Orleans where like you step out onto a street and there's just so much sound coming out of all these different bars that it's just like in the middle, it tends to sound soup, but it's just music is coming from every kind of orifice and corner of every sort of um, hole in that place. So, so I think for me that that's, potentially one of them or like being sort of drenched in this kind of swamp of, of music that's not something either you can replicate in recorded music at all really it was very hard to yeah exactly how have you been listening to music in the absence of live music well i mean i don't listen to as much as i should i mean whenever i do listen to music it, it again it's like a big inspiration and inspiring force but i guess because i spend so much of my time trying to make music that i rarely find most you know i don't drive and i don't you know, recently there's been no sort of long travelling or commuting or any kind of thing. There's not really much opportunity for me to listen to music. So I, I try more and more to, like, just over the last week, for example, I've been um, trying to actively sort of discover and listen to some more things because it just has a massive knock-on impact on what I make. It's, it's beneficial. It's really helpful to um, cross-pollinate and, you know, expose your ears to new delights, basically. But there's a great... Um, I've just been listening a bit to there's a there's a kind of it started off as an, a website but now it's an app called Radio with about five O's on the end and it's a kind of global time machine where you can it's a map of the world and you you pick you can either do it by global or you pick a particular region and it's got um it's got a kind of slider that takes you back all the way to sort of 1910 so you can go to kind of Greece in 1910 and then you've got three filters you've got slow fast and weird and you can pick all or, or any and then and you can and it will just basically just play music from that time and from that period um or you can select you know regions i think even the maps of the countries change as the years go back as the late soviet union collapses and really, i think that, um, it kind of responds to that. So it's, it's a really interesting way of exploring music of all sort of periods of time and, and, and regions of the world. And you'll always discover some amazing, amazing, amazing stuff through that. So that's something I've um, constantly finding amazing gems through, but just, just leaving radio on and shuffle basically with, um, you know, weird and slow 1970s and Southeast Asia on and just see what happens. 
So were there any recordings or you mentioned the Miles Davis sketches of Spain. Are there any other albums like that uh, or recordings from any genre that really uh, are ones you return to time and time again? Yeah, definitely. I mean, whether or not like I listen to them like time and time again, but as a reference point, like yeah. things that have become like total reference points or game changing moments for me that when I heard them, everything sort of shifted in my mind. I mean, there's, I mean, one that recently has just been the kind of a huge influence just in the way I think about sound and music and kind of ecological sound and stuff is this, is this amazing recording by Louis Sano, um, who's um, basically was one day in Belgium in the 50s and heard this recording of um, music of the um, forest people of Central Africa and the Aturi forest and um, the Aka or Bayaka people. And he basically just like heard this crazy kind of polyphonic singing tradition that just became so completely um, entranced by it that he moved immediately out to Congo and ended up marrying a Bayaka woman and, and has recorded the most extraordinary collection of this amazing polyphonic music over the years. And But um, anyway, there's one recording in particular from that called Women Gathering Mushrooms. And it's just, it's one of the most atmospheric things I've ever heard. It's You, you just hear the sound of the kind of jungle, dense forest environment. And then right in the distance, as just walking into earshot, these women kind of singing to each other across the forest as they gather mushrooms. And you can just hear the way that like music evolved. I mean, it is very early music and these are very, very early kind of people i'm not suggesting they're sort of um stuck in the past it's very contemporary it's like it's very much alive very much real very much now but in some ways it, it is a sort of strangely like an insight into the kind of evolution of it's human music that's so completely embedded in a kind of natural acoustic ecology that the music the human music fits into the same sort of the space that bird vocalizations do or that any other kind of animals vocalizations do and Bernie Krause is again. He talks about this kind of this idea of biophony um, and a healthy ecosystem. Every animal evolves to leave itself, leave itself space and other animals space. Nothing's trying to compete on, it, uh, on the same frequency band or the same rhythmic band. So everything evolves on acoustic niche, as they have also a physical niche. Or, um, you know, long enough in the same place, and you learn to kind of adapt around each other. And, and in the same way, I think that if you analyze the kind of spectrogram of the recording of women gathering mushrooms, you know, that the animals are leaving the human space, the humans are leaving the animals space. They're like, it's, it's just a, it's a kind of music that really feels like it's um, ecologically enmeshed in its, in its sonic environment in a way that like I've just never, never heard before. So that's, that's something for me that's always been just like an absolutely astounding recording that just it feels like a, like a strange insight into another world. Mm. I guess also the the British landscape has long been a source of inspiration for composers from like Vaughan Williams and Lark Ascending to The Orb and nineteen like 1990s electronic music that kind of created sounds like that. Is there some, what is it about this country's landscape in particular, if you think there is, that has continued to spark inspiration for musicians or composers? I mean, in all fairness, I think it's just the fact that I'm English and grew up here and that <laughs> Vaughan Williams is English and grew up here and the Orb were English and grew up here. I mean, I think anyone who grew up wherever they were and was a musician would in some way channel or reflect their... Um, their landscape will be inspired by their landscape. Um, you know, I think it's just a consequence of being in a place, like we're all rooted in, in, in places, or not all rooted in places, you know. There have been lots of very high-profile British composers that, um, you know, maybe less less high-profile sort of composers from other places that also reflect that. But um, I think it's just a natural consequence. I think places themselves and ecology and, and um, places of natural beauty are just are artistically inspiring.
you referred to that website radio are there any other places like that that you turn to for reference points or that you think would be good to recommend to others who may not be familiar with that world yeah i mean there's also i mean something i check in with occasionally is a great record label called from dust to digital um and they just released an amazing um record called an alternative history of world music um and it's based on 78s there's a guy who's basically just been because there's a kind of i guess around the proliferation of 78s and recorded music and the commercial sale of recorded music there's a certain kind of people assume that it's you know in the 20s 30s all the music everyone was listening to is that 20s 30s jazz era kind of stuff and just because most of the west like you know american made films from that era always have that as the soundtrack and and their point was obviously there was so much other music being recorded all over the world and um, of the same era and period and and so they've just collected and put together this amazing kind of mix and mashup of of 78s from from you know early kind of 20th century or um 20 well 19 to 10 to 1950 mm. i guess and so yeah listening to some of that has been very extraordinary um also the smithsonian folkways website is something that I occasionally kind of mm. um navigate through there's just some amazing stuff on there so just like an unbelievable repertoire of um mm. archive of just extraordinary kind of ethnographic recordings and sort of folk music from all over the world basically um um from kind of early 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 years of recording technology so yeah I, that's something that i often also have a rummage through whenever i'm feeling a bit stumped or bored so what are you working on at the moment I'm trying to make an album at the moment, and it's, I mean, I was. If you talked to me yesterday morning, I'd say it was. I'd be less enthusiastic, but I actually had a bit of a sort of last night. Yeah, I don't know. I've got this. I've started this beast of a tune that's just like morphing and morphing and getting longer and longer. And then yesterday, it sort of realised that it actually turned into two tunes, and then I sort of ended up developing one of them, which I actually really, really, really enjoying at the moment. So yeah, I've just suddenly I've struck a little seam of, um, of some sort of rich mineral deposit somewhere, but um yeah just kind of assembling this loose mixture of tunes that i've collected over the last couple of years yeah and just trying to get back into it's it's quite hard sometimes to get back into a piece of music that you started a long time ago it's like there's a kind of cell wall or like semi-permeable membrane around it and sometimes it just takes a bit of force to kind of get into it and then once you're there and you start being savage and chopping things up and deleting things and then it's then it's okay again but it's there's always this kind of preciousness if you haven't touched something for ages to kind of tiptoeing back into it and not and it takes some really kind of brutal acts to, to feel like it's um alive and kicking again do you have like an enormous hard drive of recorded sounds that you've just captured over the years that's just sitting there waiting to be used i mean sort of i guess you don't really need enormous hard drives anymore these days cause <laughs> but yeah i've just um I, like yesterday someone sent me a link to these amazing recordings um of all sorts of rodents <laughs> and they wow Turns out they're just incredibly vocal, and and but they just they speak and communicate at incredibly high frequencies to the point where a lot of them are sort of inaudible to humans. So I have yet to, mm-hmm. I've got this whole archive of mice and like all these other kind of rats and and various kind of small rodents. So I'm going to put them in, slow them all down, and see what I find in the in the upper upper registers. <laughs> I've also got um um I've just bought basically been piecing together. I've got a little bat monitor, and I've got um some ultra, ultrasonic microphones and. And I've been meaning to, the bats are probably about to any day now start sort of getting a bit more active and waking up and from their hibernation. So I'm, I'm hoping to try and record some bats in the, in the coming, coming little while. 
when I saw you in Bristol, you mentioned one of the sounds that you were using was was taken from a friend's opera and it was like an animal carcass or something. <laughs> Am I totally yeah, misremembering so, this? No, 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 you're remembering, remembering very well. Um, so, yeah, my friend Kate Whitley, who's an amazing composer. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So she was, um, she was writing an opera about a, a sort of cannibalistic pelican, I think it was, that, uh, <laughs> It used to sort of well, not exactly cannibalistic. So it wasn't eating other pelicans. It was eating, I think it was probably humans. <laughs> and she needed some sounds of um of meat and sort of bone and gristle for the sort of sound design and sound effects of this horrible beast of a pelican that was going around sort of you know chewing. And so she went to a butcher, I think, and got a big chunk of cow carcass, and then took it to a recording studio, um, and just did did her magic on it and <laughs> I don't know what she did but she sent me the recording afterwards and it's it's just like this unbelievable snapping crunchy kind of like <laughs> you were like I want that <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly and that was around the time that I made the song Rich and it just like happened yeah. to become part of the percussion <laughs> was Cosmo Sheldrake talking to me from his garden in Dorset. To find more details and links to everything we spoke about in this week's episode, check the show notes or visit our website. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the team at BBC Music Magazine. Do let us know what you think of the podcast by rating and reviewing it wherever you've been listening. If you want to find out more about BBC Music Magazine, we're available in print and various digital formats across the world. Or you can visit our website, classical-music.com, where you can read about all the latest music happenings, read thousands of reviews and a good deal more. Thanks to Acast for hosting and Brittany Colley for production. Do you want to be part of a global community of people who are passionate about sound? Join the House of Bang & Olufsen for the latest news on sound innovation, as well as invites to exclusive events, special offers and behind-the-scenes content. You'll also be the first to receive information about new and limited series products, from atelier editions to highly coveted collaborations. Sign up today at bang-olufsen.com forward slash classical.